When I was uh, 12 years old, my parents divorced, and my parents had been married for more than 20 years, and we, I grew up in, um, I guess, kind of a, a Christian home. We, weren't, we were kind of in and out of church, but <clears throat> I never thought that my parents would divorce. And um, as a 12-year-old, it came very, very unexpectedly. I remember at that point in my life, um, I believed in God. I would say I believed in Jesus, but I, I seriously began to question whether God was good um, and could he be trusted. My, my parents divorced and it felt like my family was just falling apart. Um, and so I really started to feel uh, a sense of aloneness as well as um, just a sense of being unlovable. And uh, around that time, I also started, <clears throat> I started getting into pornography. Um, had a computer in the basement of our house where I lived, and uh, I started looking at it regularly. And up to that point, um, really, I, I hadn't, the most I had talked to my parents and <clears throat> authority figures about sex was just that it was something that was mainly, <laughs> mainly dirty and uh, not very fulfilling, and that if I didn't, didn't wait until marriage, um, if I was caught doing something like that outside of marriage, I might be kicked out of the house. And so kind of my, uh, my understanding of it was, was skewed, was very, very unbiblical. And, uh, but at the same time, I started getting into pornography and I really liked it. I, I started to feel, um, when I looked at it, I felt a sense of being accepted um, and being, being loved. Um, and so I kept going, going back to it. Around that time, I also got invited to go to a youth group with some friends. And I, I quickly began to realize that um, God's love in Jesus was, was and would be what I needed. Um, as my family was falling apart, it provided a sense of security. Um, and so I made a commitment to faith in Jesus. But as I started to get older through high school, um, what happened was my, my secret life with pornography developed alongside, um, alongside this, this outer church life. And so it was something that I really didn't, I didn't talk about um, because it was something that I thought was very shameful. And I quickly became aware, um, <clears throat> reading the Bible here and there and being in church, that, okay, this is, this is something that is wrong and it's, it's probably not good for me. Um, but up to that point, I had thought, you know, what's the harm in this? It's something nobody else knows about, and uh, I felt like I wasn't really hurting any real people. Um, but as I continued to go to youth group and uh, got closer with some of my friends there, other guys, I realized that uh, this was something that was causing me pain and grief, and, and I felt like it was creating distance between me and God. And, and so I realized that there was, there was a problem. Um, so I would say late, in late high school, I started to um, talk about it, open up about the issue with uh, a couple of friends that I trusted. And so we would, we would begin to confess these sin struggles that we were having. And um, I would say that started uh, a several year long period in my life where um, I, I would do this thing in secret at times more, more frequently, and I, and I hated it, but 
I would confess it regularly to my friends, and it, and it almost felt like, um, felt like, okay, well, it's not a problem because you can confess it. And I always kind of thought in the back of my head that if I really want to, I can stop doing this. Um, it's not something that uh, has control over me. And I realized when I was uh, going into college, and <clears throat> a year or two into college, that uh, it was still something that was in my life. And I just began to get this really sick feeling deep down that something was, something was really off with my, the way that I related to people and the way that I related to God. And uh, the best way I could describe it is there's, there's this idea, um, this word in Scripture called shalom that the Bible uses to describe uh, wholeness or right relationship, right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. Um, and so this kind of inner wholeness. And I realized that what I had experienced and what developed in me was actually the opposite of shalom. It was an inner dividedness. I, I had this outer life that appeared like I was a, a good Christian. I was kind to people. I had friends. I would go to church. Uh, I would serve. I, I enjoyed singing worship and sometimes even sharing my faith. And, uh, and yet at the same time, there was this secret part of my life, this separate part that uh, rejected God and uh, rejected <laughs> his authority and um, would just do those things that, uh, that were clearly wrong. And so I would say I, on the inside, I began to feel very divided. And it took a few years of, of trying because I thought that I could, I thought that it was something that I could control. And so I really had it in the back of my head that I was going to, I, I could stop looking at pornography at any time. But nonetheless, I continued to, to go back to that sin. And I think in a lot of ways, um, even though I didn't, didn't have any real ongoing relationships with, with women, I felt like it was a place where I was accepted. So I would say, <clears throat> particularly um, coming out of the divorce and, and experiencing loneliness and little bouts of depression in my life, I, I would feel like at a core level, I started to feel unlovable. Um, I knew that what I was doing was wrong, and, and I, would, I would think, well, that just proves that I'm, I'm really unworthy of any kind of love, and uh, at my core, I'm really, I'm really just I'm rotten. Um, I have nothing, nothing good. And so I began to think that, well, if I can stop looking at pornography, then maybe God will love me. Maybe he'll accept me. Maybe Jesus will accept me if I can just, if I can get my act together. Uh, and so I spent a long time, I would say, uh, on the inside with my relationship with God. I was really trying to earn his favor, um, which is not the gospel. It's not the good news at all. Uh, even though I would say that God was gracious and forgiving and that there's no way we could earn God's love for us in Jesus, in actuality, I was trying to do that. I remember at one point, um, several years ago, I was coming to a place of despair with, with the struggle. I felt like I had tried and tried, and it seemed like things had only gotten worse. Um, I was looking at pornography, you know, alone in my room at different times. Like when I, where I would feel lonely or when I would feel um, defeated or if I felt like, like I was rejected by the world or, or by friends or even if I felt like I did really poorly on a test, 
Um, I was constantly kind of on a, on a performance treadmill, and when I felt like I was failing, I would go to that for, um, I guess, to, to medicate the pain or um, just a, a form of escape. And uh, I was despairing because I began to realize that looking at these images and um, experiencing this inner perversion and, and dividedness had actually began to affect my real relationships with women and the way that I viewed them and um, just the ways that I, I interacted with them. And I realized I've got, I've got a massive problem and I can't, um, I can't just overcome it on my own. But during that time, uh, a friend was, was praying for me and uh, they stopped in the middle of prayer and they said, Sam, I believe God wants you to know that he is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. And I remember at the time, I, I had tears of frustration coming down my face. I was thinking, there's no way God's pleased with me. If, there's, if he knows the thoughts that I've had and the things that I've done uh, and the things that I'm struggling with, there's no way that he would be pleased with me. God is perfect and holy. There's no way. Um, but I would say that was, a, that was a big breakthrough point because through conversations with, with that person and and just reading in God's word, I realized that when we come to faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in him, God is actually pleased with us, that his love for us is no longer based on our performance. Even, even in the midst of our struggles, even as Christians, when we have sin struggles, uh, that's not an issue of earning God's love. And um, the, one of the verses that just spoke to me at the time was Jeremiah 31, 3 through 4. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again and you shall be rebuilt. And I, I would say that I began to have hope in my life that my broken sexuality was something that Jesus had compassion for and that he was able to, to rebuild in my life. And, um, and so that was, a, that was a turning point. So some of the shame and despair began to lift. And I would say coming out of that was, was also a process uh, that the healing process is ongoing. And so I, I did, I had, to, um, I had to establish close friendships with, with other men and began to talk to them regularly about um, not only what I was struggling with, but also uh, a lot of things from my past. And so, uh, for instance, I know that... Um, Sometimes when we revisit our past, I, I've done this, I would revisit it and, and really want to blame my, my current problems on things that happened to me in the past. And uh, a lot of modern counseling will, will do that. Um, but I realized that that wasn't, that wasn't actually bringing me inner wholeness. It wasn't, wasn't helping. But revisiting those, those things of the past, such as my parents' divorce and ways that I had been um, neglected or or hurt in my younger years uh, was really helpful for me to understand that there were lies that I was believing about myself that were connected to those events. And so uh, for me, probably the most powerful of those events being my parents' divorce, I, I had a, a, deep, a deep sense of at the end of the day, I just deep down felt like there's no way that God loves me because uh, because I'm unlovable, I feel a sense of unworthiness and shame. And so as I began to have conversations with uh, close friends and 
uh, my pastor at the time, to draw some of these things out, I began to realize that underneath some of those sin struggles that I was having with, with pornography and uh, sexual sin, there was actually these lies that I believed about myself. Um, so it was actually rooted in my identity. Did I, did I believe that Jesus loved me unconditionally and uh, not only would forgive me, but would also walk with me and, and bring healing and wholeness to my life? Um, and so that's been, that's been an ongoing process, but uh, <clears throat> as it's continued, as my relationships have grown more authentic with others and, um, and pornography no longer has a hold on me, and that it's no longer something that I, I go to the way I once did. And, um, and so that was completely something I realized that, that Jesus did in me. And uh, one of the ways that uh, I read recently just about the way God works in our lives is that when we're at our very worst, God gives us our, his very best. And so even in the midst of my sin, even, even on my worst day when I was looking at things I shouldn't have been when I was having perverse thoughts and, and just totally divided on the inside. Um, it was just at that point that Jesus reached out and that Jesus was, was saying, I love you and I want to bring you back. Uh, and I'm faithful. I'm not, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Uh, Jesus bringing freedom to my life from, from this pornography and this secret sin has felt like a huge weight lifted off. And so it's been a kind of a dramatic turnabout in my inner life, um, just with this, I would call it just a sense of peace, of knowing that I'm secure in God's love, that my identity is not in question, uh, the way that it once was, the way that I would constantly go back and forth. It's brought a lot of freedom in, in worship as well, and actually enjoying worshiping Jesus, enjoying spending time with Him and singing to Him, uh, those were things that for a long time felt, felt like things that I had to do because they were a part of the Christian life. The way that I, was, I had related to God for a long time um, was very, very religious. And so in the sense that, I, 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 like I mentioned, I wanted to earn God's love. And I just thought, oh, if I can just be pure, um, then I'll be worthy. And uh, I thought that's something that I could do in my own strength. Um, but I was reading the Psalms, and one verse that, that God put on my heart a few years ago that is just stuck there is from Psalm 8611. Uh, David is the psalmist, and, and David was known as a man after God's own heart. But in the middle of this psalm, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Uh, and when I read that, I was struck. I was thinking, David... This man who's walking closely with God is asking God to give him an undivided heart. And that was, that was encouraging and challenging because it was seeing that a heart that loves Jesus and, and fears his name and knows his love is actually something that he gives. It's, it's a gift. He gives that to us. And it was an encouragement to, to be seeking that. Um, and so my, I would say my prayer life changed a lot because for the longest time I had viewed it as things that I had to earn and things that I had to do. Um, and so I would say those have been, those have been some of the powerful moments in my, in my journey.
in the video, you saw that one of the, the verses that's really spoke to him in particular was Jeremiah 31, 3 through 4. So he's just going to read that. And I've actually asked him to, if he would go ahead and just share a few thoughts for us. And then I'll, I'll add mine. Jeremiah 31, 3 through 4. In the past, God appeared to us, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt. God raised up Jeremiah, a prophet, uh, in a really dark time in Israel's history. One of their enemies, Babylon, was in the process of conquering them, and he was going to drag them off to exile and uh, essentially captivity. And Jeremiah comes and, and declares that it's, it's not because of God's unfaithfulness, but because of Israel's unfaithfulness that they were going into captivity. They had come to a place of spiritual and moral decay and, and ruin. And Jeremiah also proclaimed that, that the heart of man was essentially sick and wicked, and that regardless of what we would try to do to heal ourselves, it ultimately would take a move of God. It would have to require God to do something uh, to restore humanity to the way they were supposed to, supposed to live. And of course, uh, Jeremiah was talking about Jesus, even though he was writing it hundreds of years before Jesus would come on the scene. And so Jesus comes, God in the flesh, and he lives and trusts God the Father perfectly. He lives a life of perfect obedience all the way to the cross when he was killed. And Jesus, taking our place, made a way for us to reconnect with him. And God raised him back to life, establishing this new covenant. And it's, when we put our trust in Jesus, we, we receive forgiveness, uh, but we also receive this everlasting love that goes behind and before us that essentially is our, our foundation. And he gives us his Holy Spirit, which empowers us to walk uh, consistent with God's ways. And so uh, I think some of us are probably in a place of feeling like you're in spiritual ruin. And some of us have experienced the same sexual sins that I experienced and feeling stuck and like you're tangled. Uh, and the good news for us is that Jesus is faithful to walk us out of our exile. Jesus is faithful to do that. And that may be a difficult process at first. It was for Israel. They actually went into exile before God would deliver them. But our hope is in Jesus. And I think the last thing I would say is just that your sin and my sin, it doesn't have the last word on us. The love of Jesus Christ has the last word on us. Outside of unforgiveness, I would say that the, uh, the biggest thing that has left more carnage, a wake of carnage, and just my experience as being a pastor, I would say is the issue of pornography. And uh, for me, the worst part isn't so much the, the sin itself, uh, uh, but it's how Satan uses the guilt of sexual sin um, uh, to, to neutralize once radical and passionate young men and women who have a heart for Jesus, who want to follow Jesus, but because of the gnawing sense of unworthiness, of the, the gnawing sense of guilt over sexual uh, failures has uh, caused them to withdraw, has caused them uh, to basically go into a, a shell, and once was alive and vibrant, uh, faith has become... Uh, whittled down to basically coming in on a, a Sunday and, and sitting there and, and acting religious on the outside, but on the inside has no ambition whatsoever. 
And I think a worse sin than, than sexual sin itself is believing uh, that God can't forgive you, that God can't redeem you, that God can't restore you. And the enemy may knock us down, but what I want to do this morning, what I want to add to, I think Sam's bold and courageous and brilliant and helpful and important uh, story that he told to us that hopefully encouraged us to unlock the secrets in our hearts that would hopefully encourage us to pursue wholeness, this shalom, this peace, this inner wholeness that he talked about. Um, what I want to add to that and what my I feel like I, God is leading me to is to go laser focus on not so much teaching us or helping us or equipping us on how not to fail, although I hope that you don't fail. Right, I, I'm praying for you that way. I, it's one of my big prayers for this church. My big prayers for you as individuals is that you would not fail. The, the pain that you would save yourselves from and the pain that you would save those that you loved, um, uh, the pain that you would save is tremendous. Uh, it, it's huge and uh, it brings a bondage and it's, a, it's, a, it's really a sin against yourself. It's unique that way. But I think the thing that I really want to hit today and the thing that I find uh, the most grievous to, to, my, to my own spirit is the fact that people who succumb to sexual failure also succumb to the guilt and the, the lies that the enemy pours on the morning after. So I want to equip you this morning on what to do once you fall into that kind of sin. The greatest strategy isn't that you would fall into this sin, but you would allow the enemy to use these failures to strip you of your zeal. And I, uh, my passion in life is to, to live up to, uh, to my redemptive potential. I, I didn't, wasn't always aware of God's plan for my life. In fact, for the, most, the, the larger part of my life, I ignored it. Uh, God, by his grace and his spirit, um, you know, the light came on and God showed me that, hey, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got good things for you to walk into. And so my passion is to, 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 to live out my redemptive uh, potential in as well to inspire and encourage you to do the same. I didn't leave my uh, job as a stockbroker to be a pastor to help people become more moral. I didn't, I didn't do that to make your life better to, to make it less troublesome. Uh, that, that's not why I did that. I, I did it because I, I wanted you to step out into risk. I wanted you to step out into adventure and to purpose. And I kind of want to lead us into that. And so what I, what, that's why I, I, what I see is so grievous isn't so much that you would fail. I mean, I hope that you don't fail. And I've preached messages, plenty of those, about not failing. But what I want to share today is I want to share what to do when you do fail. When sexual sin knocks you down, how to not stay down and not have it ruin your life. And I realize that talking to some, I mean, I haven't connected with you yet because you think pornography is not a big deal. And uh, you don't see it as a sin. You see it as a pastime. It's something that you do in, in private, and it's your business, and, and you don't think it's destructive. And I just want to say that I just want to encourage you to, to read about it. Um, I would say Google 
pornography, but then that wouldn't work out so well. Um, but I don't know, put something on your web search that would help prevent that. But I mean, you read articles, the research that's coming out on this, I mean, not from Christianity Today, I'm talking New York Times, Washington Post, you name it, is the, the destruction that this causes. One uh, woman is quoted, uh, he, she co-authored this with this guy, Robert Jensen, Gail Dines, that's who it is, says, anyone who thinks um, pornography is a harmless diversion should talk to marriage therapists and divorce lawyers. It's basically like you've been living on a rock if you think that this isn't going to affect you. Studies of coming out saying that pornographic and erotic images over time will actually change something chemically in your mind, eventually making you unable to, uh, to in, a, in a natural, healthy way, relate to someone of the opposite sex. It will ruin your ability to be in those relationships. And some of you have wondered why you're um, in your marriage relationships, what, what's the problem? What's, what's happened to the chemistry? Why is there not this spark? And, and oftentimes it comes back to there being a pornographic image, uh, por- pornographic uh, issue. Uh, and just let me say this. In World War II, I don't know if you knew this, in the 1940s, our U.S. government used to give the GIs all the cigarettes that they could smoke. As much as they wanted, they gave them all the cigarettes. And then like a few years later, they're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. I think we made a mistake. All these things came out like smoking's bad. It could kill you. And now you can't even like, you know, find a phone booth to smoke in. I mean, it's just the government spends billions and billions of dollars telling you not to smoke. When in, you know, in the past, they handed them out to our GIs. And now they're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars saying, don't do this. This is dangerous. And I'm saying that because you can, you can overlay uh, what we know now about cigarettes with pornography, which is, hey, it's not a big deal. Everybody does it. But now studies are coming out to where this is very, very damaging. And I'm not even quoted any verses yet. And I'm doing that just to say, I mean, of course, if you consider the Bible your authority, there's some things it says about that. But I'm just taking for granted that maybe that's not an authority in your life. And I'm just saying that's very, very destructive. So when I say things like, hey, you got to get away from this, and you're thinking, what's the big deal? I just want you to know what the big deal is so I can finish here what I, what I have to say. It is a very big deal. And for those of us who have come to the place to say, I know that this isn't what I'm supposed to do, you, can't, you, you're, you feel guilty, um, and there... There is a sense to where it's right that you do. Um, you know, pain is to the body as guilt is to the mind, to, is to the soul. I mean, there is something about guilt that says, hey, there's a problem. If you didn't have pain, you wouldn't live very long because you would never, your body would never know when it's in trouble. So guilt isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the enemy uses that guilt in a destructive way. And I want to I equip us this morning. I want to help us this morning what to do the morning after sexual sin. So if you turn to Micah, Micah 7, and to save you from spending half the morning finding Micah, uh, if you have a black Bible, it's on page 780. Micah likes to hide along with some of the other minor, pro- minor prophets. And this is not Malachi. This is, this is it's not Malachi, it's Micah. <laughs> We're going to read uh, verses 8 through 9. 
and then we'll chat about it. This is something that you can, uh, this is a verse, and what I'm going to do in just our next 10 minutes is I'm going to walk through this very simply, and I'm going to point a couple things out. But what I really want you to do with this verse is I want you to memorize it. I want you to soak it in. I want you to maybe type it out and put it in your wallet, and I want you to have it ready as a weapon, as a tool to fight uh, the accusations of the enemy that would cause you to believe uh, a lie that just simply is not true, and that is you cannot be forgiven, you cannot be restored, and you are a loser, you are worthless, that you are um, unloved and unwanted. It's just not true. So let's read this together. I'll read it, then we'll go through it slowly. Rejoice over me, or excuse me, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. This verse uh, starts off, rejoice not, O my enemy, uh, for when I fall, I shall rise. This is a thing that you can do with uh, the enemy of your soul, is that you can say, hey, look, I have fallen, uh, but I will rise. And the reason why I have assurance that I'll rise is it says, when I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Yes, I am sitting in darkness. Uh, you think that's news to me? You think I don't feel horrible about this? You don't think I feel guilty? You don't think I feel miserable? You don't think I feel rotten? You don't think I feel guilty? I am guilty. But that's not all that's true about me. That's not all that's true about the cross. There's another truth you need to know, Satan, that God is a sustaining light to me. You're, saying, you're trying to make me believe that God's left me, that his light is not with me, but he promised to never leave me or forsake me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. That word indignation means wrath. It means God's wrath, God's holy and justified wrath. And there is a wrath for sin. That's a real thing. There's a day coming where God's wrath will be poured out. And it's, it's going to be a bad day. It says in Revelation that the, when the Son of Man returns, that is, Jesus returns for the second time, that people will ask that rocks fall upon them because of God's wrath. And, this, and we feel that. That's what this guilt is. We begin to feel that this is a wrong thing to do. It's like putting your hand on the stove when it's hot. The guilt that you feel is a warning that this is not the place that we want to go. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. This is true. You've, you've sinned. You've, you've committed a sin until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Okay, you've got a few things right, Satan. That is true. I have sinned. I, I am guilty. I am bearing the indignation of the Lord. I, I'm feeling that, uh, that God's wrath toward uh, sin, but the very one, this is what's amazing about this verse, and this is what's amazing about the gospel in Jesus. The very one who is, in, who is indignant with me is the one who executes judgment, not against me, but for me. The very one 
who is indignant towards sin is the very one who's pleading my case and who is executing judgment and justice in my place for me, not against me. And we're going to get to this when we get back into the Colossians series, but in Colossians 2.14, it says, it's, it's, it's a picture for us to see. It says, the record of our sin was nailed to the cross and thereby canceling our debt. That there is a record of, uh, uh, there is a record of debt against you and against me. It's a record of all of our sins. And the Bible says that, that all of our sins and even just one of our sins comes with it a sentence of death. And I talked about this last week. You shouldn't be surprised by this because if you, if you haven't figured this out yet or not, everybody dies. The sentence has already been proclaimed upon humanity. It's already there. Now those who trust in Jesus pass from death to life and those who don't pass from death to more death to an eternal death. And so there is this record of debt that's very large. And what the Bible says is God does, did not take that record of debt and he didn't put it in our face and say, here's the warrant for your arrest. But he took that record of debt and he put it in his son's hand with a nail and he drove it through, thereby canceling our debt. He executes judgment, not against me, but for me. The very one who is indignant toward me pleads my case. He will bring me out of the light. I shall look upon his vindication. This is what you say the morning after sexual sin. When the enemy of your soul, the liar, the accuser, is seeking to keep you down, impress you down, to get you to lose hope, say, ah, what's the point? To strip you of any ambition that any time you try to pursue Jesus, the enemy comes to you, what are you doing? He, he's, he doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. You've sinned. You've, you sin sexually. You, you, you can't help but look at pornographic images. You're like a dog in heat. That's all you are. What do you do every time you have a desire to go after God and the enemy presses upon you and twists you and stabs you with that lie? Because he's half right. All heresy is half right. All truth, all heresy that has any kind of legs is half right. The half right is you have sinned. That's, that's part of the truth. You see, your case has been tried. If you are in Christ, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, your case has been tried. And the sentence came out and you were guilty. And Jesus stepped in and he said, I will pay the price. And you were set free, not on your merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ, which he died 2,000 years ago that happened for you and outside of you, which means it doesn't depend on you. You can look back at it and see that it's happened. 
And what happened on that cross is your debt was canceled. And what the enemy loves to do, he loves to retry your case. He wants to retry your case. He wants to drag you back into the courtroom. He wants to see, see you've sinned, which is half true. What's not true is that you are now guilty. Well, wait a minute. I thought I sinned. I thought I am guilty. No, well, yeah, you were. But Jesus paid the price for you. You now look upon him. So it's not about you. It's not about your bad behavior. It's not about your good behavior. It's about Jesus' behavior. It's about the fact that he went into the wilderness and he was tempted in every way. And he succeeded. And now his success is your success. You don't have to squabble. You don't have to, oh, will God accept me? We'll get. No, of course he does. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And now you are in Christ. You are a new creation. You are completely different. You see, what is faith? What does it mean to be a Christian? Faith, faith is not perfection, right? Faith, faith is not, isn't equated with not sinning. Faith has nothing to do with performance. Faith isn't that you never sin sexually. Faith is that you fight. Faith is that you fight anything that would become between you and Jesus. Anything that would diminish the glory and the beauty and the love and the fame of Jesus. You fight. And what I want to do this morning is I want to equip you to fight. I don't want you to slouch back into your chair. I don't want you to be defeated, not because you don't deserve it. It's because of what Jesus has done, that Jesus on the cross has done an amazing work. He has completely defeated your enemies. And Colossians 2.15 says that he has disarmed the principalities and powers and rulers of this. He's disarmed them, has no authority over you. The enemy can't damn you. He, he has no power over you. He's completely disarmed them on the cross. And you can tell the enemy that when, those, when guilt rushes in. So what we want to do here at Jubilee Church is that we want to be, we want to stand not on our goodness or lack thereof, but on the perfection of Jesus because our case has been tried and God has paid the price for us and we want to encourage each other in our faith. Not being okay with sin, but believing that Jesus has actually forgiven us. And as a community, we don't want to be the star witness either in the enemy's accusations. We want to love each other. We want to point sin out just like we would say, ha, watch out for that hot stove. But we want to show grace and mercy and love and kindness and encourage each other when we fail, not be the star witness for the enemy. So I hope this morning that you have hope through Sam's story that it's possible to break any 
addiction that you have, any pornographic addiction, any sexual addiction, any, any sexual immorality bondage that you're in, you can break free from that. And I also want to equip you with when you fail. By the way, this works with all sin, not just sexual sin. Anytime you sin, are we to be okay with sin? No, we gotta, no it's, it's, it's right to hate that we did that. But we need to quickly. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 that we quickly run to Jesus. We quickly run to our gracious high priest. We quickly run to the throne of grace with our issue. We quickly go to him and say, I, I, wanna, I need to see your cross again. I need to see it. I need to see your, I need to see your nail-scarred hands. I need to see your feet. I need to see your back. I need to see you. I need to see that it really happened, that you really did pay the price for my sin, that you really did give me your righteousness. Because it's all true. That's the amazing thing about this. It's all true, and it's all for us. And so I hope that you have faith to fight. I hope you have faith to fight, whether it's fighting guilt or fighting the sin itself. Because in Jesus Christ, he gives us hope, and he does truly set us free. Why don't we get out our communication card?